0: Conductive wire and you so electric I had no say when you came so near and just right through me hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is back. I'm your host, Deanna Chapman, and I am joined by Katie Schaefer to talk about the nineteen seventy eight film Halloween. We did things a little backwards and we talked about the 2018 Halloween film before talking about this one, but we are finally getting around to it. I think it was still important to come back and talk about this movie because it really feels like one of those slasher films that kind of started off this very, very long storied franchise. Yes, I agree.
1: This is one of the first really hit huge slasher films. And, you know, it really kickstarted Carpenter's career and made his musical prowess uh, something that people acknowledged with his soundtrack of this that was really helped make the movie what it is.
0: Yeah, and it's just had such an impact on the horror genre in general, I would say, even though, you know, slasher films might not be the most thoughtful films at times, I think Halloween was able to accomplish something a little more with the slasher style horror
1: film. I agree. I think, you know, at the time, there was a lot of controversy and there has been controversy over the years about what exactly Carpenter meant and whether or not this is, you know, a feminist film, so to speak, of showing Laurie Strode triumph whether it's a you know sexist film that wants to be moralistic about horny teenagers you know you can read a lot into it and that's what makes it so good because it is it kind of plays it ambiguously and lets the viewer interpret what they think the meaning behind it is or just enjoy it as a fun movie
0: Yeah, it was one of those movies that I think I watched probably sooner than I should have. I just remember I would go over to one of my friend's houses pretty much every Halloween for a stretch of a few years at least. And we would sort of just put on these horror movies, you know, like Halloween Nightmare on Elm Street. And even if we never really finished the entire movie, it would sort of just get us in that Halloween spirit enough to then go out and go trick-or-treating or whatever, because this was quite a while ago. And this was one that stuck with me. I don't know if it's just because of Michael Myers' mask or what, or maybe it's because we had someone who was dressed as Michael Myers following us around one Halloween. I have no oh, idea. God. But it was someone who, instead of you know having a fake knife or whatever, he would just drag a shovel around And, like, it would make that horrible noise on the street. And my friend one year literally ran into some stranger's house because she was so terrified of the person.
1: (laughs) I can see why. How upsetting.
0: I, however, found it very funny, but I think I was one of few. (laughs) You could appreciate the thought behind it. (laughs) She probably didn't think I was a very good friend at that moment. (laughs) No, probably not. (laughs) That's okay. And I think, you know, the character of Michael Myers just stuck with me. So why don't we go ahead and talk about some of the characters in this? Because there are really only a few that are sort of of note. Most of them are victims, and they don't necessarily play huge, huge roles. But really, it's Michael Myers, you have Laurie Strode, you have Dr. Loomis, and you have just the big event that sort of changes the trajectory of Michael's life when he kills his sister. So even though the sister isn't in it very, very long, she's sort of the trigger for everything that happens after the fact.
1: Right. The catalyst for Michael's change. And it feels so shocking. You know, that's the scene that starts the movie is this little kid violently stabbing his older sister, who's also topless, uh, which is a little crazy. But yeah, (laughs) it is a very wordless way to give the audience an idea that this is who this character is, even back to when it's he's a small child. There's no, he; he they don't have to play anything else out for us. That two-minute scene is enough to tell us who he is and that he's bad. And it works so well to set the tone of the film, because you know that if they're getting this violent and graphic in the first few minutes, especially in the 70s, that we are in for some crazy time.
0: Yeah, not only was this movie a big turning point for, I think, a lot of the horror franchises that would come even after Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and everything. But as far as the characters and actors go, it was a big turning point, I think, for Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, She was pretty young when she was in this movie, not like child star young, but she's been acting for years and years and years now. And it really started with this movie as sort of that turning point for her. And she was willing to come back 40 years later and play the same character. So I think even she has an understanding and an appreciation of what this movie was able to accomplish.
1: Right, this was her first feature film. So, and it kind of catapulted her into getting a lot of roles, particularly as a scream queen. Mm-hmm. And and her character, well, she is, you know, a good girl, quote unquote. She's also very strong and has this determination and will that is what allows her to survive. Um and she's very brave because being brave is doing something that is utterly terrifying to you but doing it anyway. And she does that several times in this movie and does things to you know help save the children that she's babysitting. She tries to save her friends and tries to bring this strength to the role. And she succeeds admirably because, like you said, she comes back and comes back and every, all the fans want to
0: see Jamie Lee Curtis in a Halloween movie. Right. And you also have the fact that three different people portray Michael Myers in this movie, but you don't Really need to focus so much on that. You know, you have the young Michael Myers at age six, and then you have Nick Castle playing him as the shape, so to speak, and Tony Moran plays him unmasked. So you have these three different iterations of Michael Myers within this one movie, and it doesn't even feel like you're taking too much time with the character. It's like they give you exactly what you need to know right up front. And then they just run with it. And you understand why he is the way he is, even if, you know, Dr. Loomis is trying to really get inside his mind, like, you know, the FBI does with serial killers these days. Instead, it was at the time, Dr. Loomis. And, you know, this was a small town. So, it's not like there was a huge police presence to begin with. So, when Michael's killing spree began, they were just so in over their heads, too. Right. And you can tell that Loomis has kind
1: of this faint, foggy idea of how dangerous Michael is. But he's, it's only after things really kick into high gear that he realizes the full extent of what could happen, and that he has to stop this. And then he's also somebody driving the plot forward, constantly trying to catch up to Michael and uh, stop this horrible, murderous monster is kind of how they portray him, even though it's just a guy. And it's just a a human guy, even though some things that happen to him, he really kind of should have died. But it's that's fine. That's fine. That's what makes Michael scary is that he continues even through pain and, you know, almost death in every movie. And Loomis is the first one to really
0: realize that, even if he didn't know it right away. Right. One of the other characters I want to talk about before we dive a little deeper into the story is Linda, because she might be one of the most annoying characters in this (laughs) Yeah, easily. And it's something that, you know, people still recognize PJ Souls for all these years later, you know, that's sort of her iconic character that she played. And while some people either had careers well before Halloween and well after, you know, it's always interesting to see which of them are sort of just really known for this one role that they played. And it never really went too far beyond that. I know she was in other things after this, but I think just because of how intense her character Linda was, you know, she played very, very far in one direction with the character. And she didn't have really too much complexity to her. And that was something that stood out in a movie that otherwise has a very very complex character as your main character. Right. She's
1: a simple, easy to understand, you know, just a a young high school girl looking to have fun and she's you know, and in her pre- one of her previous roles a couple of years earlier she was uh Norma in Carrie. Right. Where I think she has a much bigger role. You know, she's isn't she's the one who's trying to befriend Carrie, correct? I think that's her. I think so. And so she was no stranger to, you know, horror movies in general. And she brings that bubbly, silly, panicky victim that she ends up being very well to the screen and that it doesn't feel overdone. It feels appropriate for what's happening. And especially in the end where Michael is, you know, dressed up in the ghost costume and coming for her, she reacts so realistically in that panicky way that I think most of us would react in that situation so I think that's probably why she's so well remembered because she just feels very natural in this film and that's a hard thing to do especially in in any film but especially in like a this kind of very basic slasher slasher film where there's I'm sure there's not a whole lot of direction in regards to what your character is supposed to be like so I think it it works so well for her
0: yeah. And Norma was actually the one in Carrie who rigged the prom queen oh, and yes. prom king okay. election. So she's not the great. bad girl. That's Yeah. Right. No. It's Sue Snell who I think tries to help her out the that's most. Right. But anyway, Sue. she does play a much more memorable role, I would say, in Halloween versus her role in Carrie, just because of the fact that, you know, she was sort of just one of the mean girls in Carrie versus Sue Snell, who sort of stood out as the one who tried to help her. But then in Halloween, you know, she's kind of sort of friends with Laurie, but you can tell Laurie doesn't really go about life the same way that Linda does. So you have this contrast between even those two characters, even though Laurie's still kind of trying to fit in a little bit, but she would probably much rather babysit than go do whatever Linda is doing. (laughs)
1: Right. And, um, but it also doesn't show her as being like a goodie. She's kind of remembered that way. But in the very, or in like the beginning when she goes and drops the key off, her and Linda are smoking a joint, like right. driving around smoking a joint. And then she's like, oh, crap, my dad's coming. So I think... Linda feels like the one who's kind of humanizing Lori instead of just being this very prim and proper person. She's she's still fun to hang out with and isn't above like some teenage pranks, but she's definitely not in the same place where Linda is at. So it feels like their friendship is very, you know, each one appreciates the other one for what they bring to it.
0: Yeah, and that just makes sort of the banter between those two characters pretty fun. And like I mentioned, you have one of the sheriffs in here and, you know, they they kind of do what they can, you know, small town again. And yep. it's just like, you can't really expect the cops to play a super big role in these movies. Effective role. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> because someone like Michael Myers is just going to keep coming and coming and coming, which is why there are now like, what, 10 Halloween movies <laughs> or something at least. Yep. And based on how the previous one ended, still might not be over. (laughs) Right. Yep. They've left it open like they always do. Yeah. And this one definitely does that very well, too, because, you know, it's one of those things where when you're starting a franchise, maybe you don't really know you're starting a franchise that would live on 40 plus years later. But I feel like John Carpenter just really captured the essence of what it takes to make people afraid. And not only does he do that with the screenplay with Deborah Hill, but he does it with the soundtrack so, so well.
1: Yes, this is a a masterpiece for Carpenter of a man who's had, in my opinion, several masterpieces. And this one is so delicately balanced in that each shot and each scene are crafted to intensify the anxiety and fear, and that's and it's all underlaid by this, you know, thumping kind of off kilter uh, score that flows through the whole thing and becomes one of the more one of the most recognizable scores that most people can identify, even if they haven't seen Halloween, and everyone's heard it. You know, it's like like in Friday the 13th, The, you know, most people know what that is. So it's he created something that wasn't just a film. He created a sound that has become almost synonymous with scary slasher in at least the American consciousness.
0: Yeah. And he had gone on to do many other horror scores, you know. Yes. We have John Carpenter's Christine, and that is another really memorable one. You have The Fog, The Thing. You just have so many different types of horror movies coming from his work. You know, Christine is nothing like Halloween, but it still captures the same kind of feeling with the score. He's still going for similar emotions there.
1: Right. And it's all about this drawing out this tenseness that sets your skin to goosebumps and makes you kind of like, oh, looking over your shoulder and checking the, checking all the closets before you go to bed type feeling where it's just, it makes you uncomfortable with its, with how the sound all plays
0: together. Right. And let's go ahead and dive into the story now, because we've touched on it quite a bit with the characters and the score and what sort of the overall feeling of the movie is. But really, after we see Michael kill his sister when he's young, you kind of just get this sense that the small town was able to go on. You know, it was this one horrible incident. And there's still sort of this lore that remains within the town. You know, the the house is abandoned and kids have to dare each other to go up to it. And we saw that still play out in the 2018 version of the film too, which I thought was a very nice parallel to this original film. And there's just so much that doesn't necessarily happen in between you know, him killing his sister, and then him getting out again. It's just like everything went on, everything was fine. Everyone knew this horrible thing happened. But it's a small town, you aren't going to have too terribly much trouble outside of that. You know, it's typically like this one bad thing happens, and this town becomes known for it. And they certainly did. But for the most part, it seemed like the cops were dealing with drunks or kids you know, doing dumb things on Halloween. And then you have this Halloween roll around and Michael Myers is out again. And it's just like complete chaos because nobody knows who he's going after. Right. And I think that's one of the most frightening things about Michael Myers. And eventually, you kind of figure it out. He's sort of going after the promiscuous kids, you know, teenagers and things like that. But he doesn't really have any other rhyme or reason to it. It's just like, I'm going to kill as many people as I possibly can. And then when he goes after Lori, you're like, but why is he doing this given who he went after? before. And you kind of realize, well, maybe that just doesn't matter. And he just wants to kill people to kill people.
1: Right. He's a, he's driven to destroy and to end like teenagers. And that's his biggest thing. Like he'll kill anybody except babies. Right. Doesn't kill babies or small children. But, you know, once you hit a certain age, then Myers will kill you because whatever, you're a person and he wants to end that life.
0: Yeah. And, you know, he'll kill any cops that get in his way. He'll kill doctors who get in his way. You know, eventually you realize that it's not just, you know, one type of person. Like you said, I think for him, the babies and the younger children are still completely innocent in his mind. You know, they haven't reached the age where they kind of know right from wrong and actively choose to do the wrong thing. Right. 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 They're innocents, and he
1: doesn't, it's almost like he doesn't see them, doesn't really acknowledge them as part of the world, because they're just not interesting to him.
0: Right. And that's something that's interesting to look at, because it's kind of logical in a sense, and yet he's someone who is completely irrational. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. He just, he kills indiscriminately and is sometimes seems just like a Uh, just like a walking stab machine. But then other times he'll do these strange things that reveal there's something more going on there. Like when he hides under the sheet to go and kill Linda and when he hides in the closets or when he kind of peeks out of places and then vanishes to get people to come to him. So he's this complex character, even though he seems very simple because At the same time as he is just a killer, he also is willing to do odd things to reach his goals. Like he is willing to do, to take steps and think about and plan and isn't just a mindless killing machine. There's a a craftiness going on in him.
0: Yeah, exactly. What do you think of the brutality of the story, too? Just how it, Starts with the death of the sister, and then just the rampage that he goes on. It is shocking,
1: even now, even though it is so much less than what you would see in a horror movie now. So much less. Like there's, there's very little blood and gore and violence in that movie in comparison to, you know, the a, a Scream. If you think about it, like Wes Craven's Scream, the original one from the 90s, you know, that movie has so much blood and guts and uh, horrific violence in it. And this one, it's all very subdued almost at times. It's just these quick bursts and the bursts are very intense, but for the most part, they're kind of, and I'm sure this was partially due to the budget, uh, they're kind of, they take place in the dark. There's no bright lights going on to show us exactly how it's happening. So it feels especially in today's day and age when we're used to, you know, graphic explosions and everything, it feels very subdued but all the more affecting for that because it's so much easier to put yourself in that other character, you know, Linda's character when it feels so normal. Like it could be taking place anywhere because of that, because real violence is not, you know, the graphic TV shows and movies that we see. It is so much more normalized when it's happening to you in real life.
0: Yeah. And like I said earlier, while this is totally a slasher film, it's one that still makes you think a little bit, you know, it doesn't make you think on the same level as hereditary necessarily. And (laughs) not many horror movies do, if we're being completely honest here. And it's just one of those things where the way horror movies are now, you can still see their roots that come from movies like this and some of the other slasher films. And, you know, horror isn't always regarded as, you know, a prestige genre or anything. You know, that typically comes with your drama films and things like that. And you know what? I don't care if horror films don't get nearly as recognized by the Academy Awards or whatever. I still am really, really finding that there's a lot to enjoy with them. And, you know, I mentioned that I had watched this probably earlier than I should have as a kid, but it hasn't been until recently that I've really been diving into the genre even more. And you probably know this more than most because of my Stephen King podcast that you've also been a guest Mm -hmm. on numerous times. It's like, there's some really, really bad horror out there. But then there's things like this where it's not asking for your entire headspace when you're watching it. It just asks you to think about things a little bit, and to also have the crap scared out of you at the same time. <laughs>
1: right. It kind of
0: sneaks into your
1: brain. Like I said earlier, Like there's been lots of examination because this is one of the earliest slasher films, and it really identifies the genre uh, for a lot of people the same way that Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and such. They all kind of are the seminal works of slasher films after Psycho, you know, Hitchcock's Psycho. This movie... Is exploring something, you know. Carpenter is not a—he is not a writer because he and uh, Deborah Hill uh, wrote this screenplay together, and neither of them are writers who kind of just let's just throw some ideas on the screen and see what comes out. Like both of them are—they explore things more deeply than that, and they explore them with this genre and the sci-fi genre and a bunch of other ones uh, very well, and they allow it to be both a fun you know, scary movie that you can watch and just get freaked out by. But it's also something that has more going on to it or has more going on underneath the surface that, like I said, just kind of creeps into your brain underneath it and makes you think about why does he do that? Why does Michael Myers act like this and what triggered this in him and all of these questions? And why does Laurie survive when no one else does? So it's, it, Gets you asking those questions, even right. if you're not someone who typically asks that kind of thing of the movies you watch.
0: Yeah. And, you know, with this only being an hour and a half, it's not like they were trying to extend the story more than they needed to. Like I mentioned earlier, they give you the backstory in such a short amount of time. But at the same time, without those few minutes there of, seeing Michael Myers as a kid and him going in his sister's room, seeing that she does not have a top on, and then killing her in such a brutal way. Without that, you don't really have any justification for the rest of the story. It's like, you know, if you don't have those few minutes of backstory, the rest would be so confusing to where... You know, I'm sure people still would have watched the movie without those few minutes in there. But then it's like, okay, why do we care that this guy is back? Right. And it, it does it all without needing an
1: info dump. So therefore, characters don't have to explain things to people who already know them. You know, like they can just kip, hit the ground running with those yeah. few minutes that have almost no dialogue. And dialogue they do have is negligible because it's pretty much just her saying, "Michael, get out." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we as the audience understand so well what's going on and it speaks to our subconscious in such a way that it we don't even need to think about it. You just accept it and the movie is can then keep going. And that is really hard as a writer and as a I know that how well how hard it is to really get into your audience's mind with such a short bit of information that you're giving them. Mm -hmm. And Carpenter does it. And he does this in all of his movies. He does it so well.
0: I also love the decision to have Michael not talk, too, because then it just makes his actions that much more powerful. He's not yelling things that you hear yelled in horrible horror movies, like, I'm going to get you, (laughs) you know, things like that. And instead, his actions speak for him. And you really don't want him to speak, given what his actions are. Right. And that makes it so
1: much more powerful as the viewer. And he feels so much more monstrous in that he doesn't communicate in anything but these horrific actions. And there's a reason why him and Jason are both like, do not talk. Yeah, And Freddie talks, but Freddie works on a different level. So Michael and Jason are they their creators understand that communication is one of the things that separates humanity from everything else on the planet because we have such a rich complex communication style and when you remove that from a character it becomes they become so much more frightening because they feel uh, either less or more than human
0: yeah they just did such a great job containing this story enough to where you're like okay I understand everything that's happening. I understand why it's happening to a degree. You know, you never truly understand right. Michael Myers. And you see over the years, doctors trying to figure him out. And in the last one, you have those podcasters trying to figure him out. Which I found hilarious. It's exactly what <laughs> yes. we're doing right now, except right? You know, they went to the source who doesn't talk. And then we're killed. <laughs>
1: Right. Except in a super rude way. (laughs) Like, in a way that I felt about those people who did the uh, Gene Simmons, or not Gene Simmons, uh, Richard Simmons podcast. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're invading privacy here. It's one thing to talk about people. It's quite another to go and shove your microphone
0: in their face. Yeah. And I just really love the simplicity of this story, too. It's like, here's this guy who did something horrible as a kid. It stayed with him all these years. And he just has this urge to kill whenever he's able to and he won't tell you anything. It's so primal. Yeah, exactly. I think that's why you can watch it over and over again because it's
1: it's very rewatchable. There's a reason that it's endured for all these decades at this point. It's such a iconic film and you can sit down and rewatch it because on both its simplicity of the story and the complexity of the motivations of that story. And it feels just so engaging. And that's, I think, why we continue to watch it and why people want more stories and more stories and more stories of this. And I don't think there will ever be another Halloween film that will top this one. Right? I think this is the best and the ultimate story because of how well it's written and shot and directed and all of that. It's just, it's such a well-made film. Especially given the time. Right, exactly. And I'm sure the tiny budget they had. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that soon.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: But it's like, okay, well, my, the best Halloween Halloween film is Halloween, but
0: then you can have your other Halloween film that you also really like. Yeah. And admittedly, I haven't watched all of them. I've seen this one and maybe some bits and pieces of others. And then the 2018 one, which was just a continuation of this one. So I feel like, you know, I saw the good ones. And then there's maybe a few I should check out in between.
1: (laughs) I really liked the second one because the second one pretty much starts up right when the first one ends and continues the story. And As much as people said that Halloween 2018 was a continuation of just the first one, like, nope, there are characters that are not in the first one that are only in the second one who make a reappearance in that one. Okay, Halloween 2 is just so very much a continuation. It's not quite as good, but I still really like it. And I still think, you know, you could just do a double feature
0: and feel like, oh, well, now I'm watching a three-hour movie instead of an hour and a half. Good to know. Good to know. I will definitely have to check that one out at the least. And let's quickly talk about Lori's side of the story, because we haven't talked about her too terribly much. You mentioned that sort of the worst thing she does is she's smoking weed in the car with Linda, or wherever they were. And it's like in the bigger picture of things, that's not that bad. You know, it's, 1970s, I'm sure lots of people were still smoking weed. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 70s was a big weed time. So it's like, okay, Lori did this one thing, and you never really feel like that one thing justifies Michael Myers going after her because of who we see him going after beforehand with, you know, the ones who are partying and sleeping together and everything like that. And Lori's just over here babysitting some kid, and, you know, he, terrifies the kid. But at the same time, like you said, he doesn't really go after kids. So given the fact that Lori is taking time out of her day to like make sure these kids are fine and babysitting, she just seems like such an odd target. But it's that moment that makes you realize Lori could have done everything right and still been a target. Right.
1: Because we can't understand the rhyme or reason as to why Michael does what he does, because we are just not given that information. And Michael would never give it to you, hence why he doesn't speak. And so therefore, it's like, it's proved to you through him going after Lori that he is not logical. There isn't a reason why he does what he does, except known, or there, the reason why he does what he does is known only to him. Right. And he won't say. <laughs> right. And that's why we see him kill so many different kinds of people, mostly teenagers, who are all engaging in everything from casual drinking to, you know, crazy wild sex to, you know, Lori, who's babysitting kids and helping them carve pumpkins and watch monster movies on TV while she studies. Right. It's just like, I don't know. I don't understand. Why would you do this? And so it makes it clear that we, he is unknowable.
0: You mentioned that Lori is also a strong character too. And she also just seems way more level-headed than all of the other high school kids that we see, especially the victims of Michael Myers. And I think that goes a long way towards why she survives and they don't. She's terrified, but at the same time, you could like see the wheels turning in her head. She's like, okay, how do I get out of this? How do I make sure the kid's fine? How do I, you know, do this and this and this? And you can tell even when she's like hiding in the closet, for instance, she's like, okay, what can I do? How can I get out of this? I'll leave the window open, make him think I went out the window, (laughs) you know, so she's planning all of these things out and trying to think a few steps ahead of him, even though that's going to be very difficult. Right. She's very smart and very logical person who's able
1: to uh, think fast and react very quickly in horrifically dangerous situations. You know, Lori is not a, she is not a shrinking violet. She gets scared and, you know, and has all of the reactions that that brings on when someone's, you know, trying to stab you yeah but she never gives up and she's never so scared that she can't do anything she's always acting to either save the kids or prevent herself from dying or leading him away from things you know she's she is a active participant in what's going on she does not just die and that's the end of it
0: Exactly. Is there anything else you want to touch on with the story before we dive into the budget and box office numbers? No, I think we covered it. It's like I said, a very simple story with complex underpinnings. Yeah, exactly. So I am looking at what it says on Wikipedia here, and I'm going to double check the numbers on Box Office Mojo. But it says the budget was around three hundred dollars to $325,000, which is n- nothing now, yep. <laughs> especially. And even then... <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, it says that the movie made between 60 to 70 million at the box office, which I'm not sure on the accuracy of that. It looks like on Box Office Mojo, it's saying 47 million. That is a lot of money at that time. Yeah. So given how small the budget is, whether it's 47 million or 60 to 70 million, it doesn't really matter which number is right, because that's a lot of money, not only for a movie with That small of a budget, but for a horror movie too, you know, you and I have discussed multiple Stephen King movies at this time, and you can kind of tell which ones you know are sort of the top tier there. You know, you have your Carries, The Shining, Christine, and those movies have big names attached to them, but then you have things like, you know, Sleepwalkers and, you know, these other movies that just totally bomb at the box office for one reason or another so even today with horror movies that genre isn't really a sure thing anymore and it seems like fewer and fewer genres are becoming sure things these days it's like if you're disney and if you're disney <laughs> that's right the sure you thing. know even star wars <laughs> yeah
1: even star wars just is not predictable and that's kind of that's a long and complicated reasons for that that um Sometimes I think of it kind of like the quote from Napoleon Dynamite, where his brother looks at him and says, like, anyone could even know that, Napoleon? And that's kind of what I think about these things, where it's like there's so many factors playing into it and going on that really pinpointing exactly why audiences aren't going to the movies for these genre pictures or anything else is too complicated to really pinpoint down, or really pin it down. Yeah,
0: plus in 1978, movie tickets didn't cost nearly what they did now. So the fact that this still no. made $47 million means a whole lot of people went to go see it. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was huge. And it was a critical and, like, audience hit. Like, Roger Ebert, who's not known for his enjoyment of horror movies in general, or especially slasher picks, really liked this movie and had nothing but good thing or, well, mostly, nothing but good things to say about it. And I think it was seen as being something very... More than the sum of its parts by both the critical and, you know, audiences, which is borne out by the fact that, like I said, almost 40 years later, we're
0: still talking about it. Yeah. One of the things I love, too, is just how iconic this franchise became. You know, I have a shirt that has Michael Myers on it, and there are plenty of companies still selling Halloween merchandise. You know, when the new movie came out, you had NECA toys doing Michael Myers figures, and you know that these things existed back in the day. So not only did the movie itself make a ton of money at the box office, I can only imagine that just merchandising this out, you know, especially Michael Myers and Laurie Strode as characters, they've probably made so much money on this franchise. And I don't know exactly who those merchandising rights would still go to if they would all just, you know, go straight to John Carpenter or what? I am not up on the legalities of all of that stuff. Right, But just the fact that you create this character that is so iconic, you know, it's like, is there anyone who pays any remote attention to horror movies who doesn't know who Michael Myers is? It's almost like how everyone kind of knows who Batman is. You know, if you've watched anything horror related, you probably know who Michael Myers is just from seeing the toys in the stores, seeing it on shirts, you know, even though the horror community might not be as big as, you know, DC and Marvel communities, there are still certain horror icons that really stand out. Right.
1: This was the beginning of merchandising film, I think, really, because this was this was come out the year before Star Wars came out. A few when- years after Star Wars. I think. Oh, did it?
0: Wait, Star Wars was 77, I want to say. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I thought it was 79. But it's still close. You know, Jaws was 75, Star Wars was 77, and this was 78. And all three of those things blew up for very different reasons. (laughs) Right. And the merchandising
1: became something that people were like, oh, wow, we can really make a lot of money on this. And Halloween was one of those that, that got tapped for its merchandising possibilities, just like Star Wars did. And I think it's, A fascinating thing to look at how those three very different movies touched the public consciousness in the 70s and spoke to audiences then and then continued to speak to audiences. You know, Jaws was the highest income making film for a long time. Yeah. And there's a reason. And that kind of crosses over genres of action,
0: horror, adventure. I was going to say that's sort of a very different kind of horror movie because there's still those horror elements to it, but it's not done in the same sort of style. And, you know, I actually did an episode on Jaws and Jason Tate and I talked a lot about just the impact that movie had on other movies that came after it. And the impact that it still has. You know, Jaws isn't necessarily as big of a franchise as Star Wars or even Halloween, but that first movie did so well that it has stuck with people all these years. You know, Fright Rags recently released a Jaws collection of merchandise. So people are still getting excited about things that come out in relation to that movie, even if, you know, there aren't. Really, any other good Jaws movies? <laughs> right. No, I've seen them all, and they're um, not not so good.
1: Not so good, I would say. <laughs> and I, would, you know, that was one of Spielberg's early big hits. Yes. And just like Carpenter, he went on to do, or or another uh, uh, another horror maven of the time, Wes Craven. Yeah. Like these guys all went on to have these long careers making these many many different stories and films. And those films really helped kick their careers off and make them household names. It's a very interesting juxtaposition of the 70s film, because you couldn't have made those movies in the 60s. None of those movies would have been possible, because of the it was still under the Hays Code. So there were limitations as to, you know, you would never have been able to show somebody stabbing a half naked woman in 1965. Right. That was that was not allowed on that was movies no or no. TV or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you couldn't have released it. You could have filmed it, but you sure never would have gotten a release. So it's awesome to see how, even in, outside of independent film or Scorsese and all of that, you also had this blooming of genre pictures that allowed every audience to expand their understanding of how we tell stories.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that is a very good note to end this on. (laughs) Yes. So thank you, Katie, for coming on to talk about this one. I know we had been waiting to do it for a while and I was like, all right, we're just, we're going to do it. It's going to (laughs) happen. Right. We got to get it done. Yeah. And of course, to our listeners, you can find the podcast at Geekdom Pod on Twitter. Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. We also have a Patreon that I will link to in the show notes. You can support this podcast and it will also help support my other podcast, Chat Cemetery, and it'll allow me to bring you some more bonus content. I know it's been a while since I've done a bonus episode on here because, well, those take extra time and I have not had too much of that lately with as many podcasts as I've been editing, but any support you can offer is appreciated. You could do a dollar a month, $5 a month, whatever you want, anything is appreciated and again katie thank you for joining me today well thank you for having me oh and i did want
1: to say one more thing donald pleasance is awesome yes in this movie yes. he does not get nearly enough love for all of his genre
0: work he is the perfect dr loomis i totally agree with that and i am sorry we did not talk about him a little more <laughs> there's too much to talk about with this one <laughs> he did make some mistakes though you know so that, that that's on he, him. Did. <laughs> he did he did All right. Well, to our listeners, thank you all for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.